Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, baseball is back as Cactus League games get underway today. And a look at the shifting economics of how we watch our local teams. But first, it is time for the Friday Newscap and some voices from the news this week. The dark cloud cast over the 2020 and 2022 elections because of the insane conspiracy theories perpetrated by high-profile election deniers could have and should have been stopped, especially as it relates to Maricopa County and its elections officials. And that obviously didn't happen last year. I'm telling you, we're the envy of lots of border states who don't have this, this relationship with their counterparts. The goal here is that in other states, there's going to be a billboard saying, come to Arizona, the starting teacher pay is X versus other states coming to Arizona and poaching our teachers. We really need to take bold action on getting the money to the teachers. We stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance every day on this floor. What's good for us is good for the children. The committee has made it very clear uh, that they're not interested in seriously vetting uh, my nominations. They're interested in Uh, carrying out their personal vendetta against me um, and using my nominees as proxy to do that. Finally, for the first time, this is a step in the direction of providing these unincorporated residents with a permanent water solution. And with me to talk about the revelation of what Mark Brnovich knew about allegations of fraud in the 2020 election, another one of Governor Hobbs' nominees to lead a state agency facing tough questions and more, our Doug Cole of High Ground. Hey, Doug. Hey, good morning. How are you, Mark? Good morning. Welcome. And uh, making his newscap debut, former House Minority Leader Reginald Bolden. Good morning to you. And good morning. So let's start with... Uh, the revelation this week of some news about the 2020 election. We're still talking about the 2020 election in 2023. Doug, this seems like a pretty clear case of we kind of know what Mark Brnovich knew and we know when he knew it. Well, um, I think I'm going to uh, give some some uh, shout out to my friend Bob Rob in his column this morning. He, he's calling this a crisis of credibility on the right, and it truly is. Just think if 280 people had switched their votes in the attorney general's race uh, this last November and and Abe Hamada had had won that race, I don't think we would have ever seen this shocking report that should have been released a year ago. Yeah, Reginald, how how shocking is this? Like how how big of a deal is this? Well, you know, I, I think the consensus, especially I would say, you know, from Democrats, progressives, folks really felt that, you know, Mark Brnovich, he new information that he held back because of the political climate that we were currently in. Uh, Obviously, he had further political ambitions and trying to appease, you know, former President Donald Trump. I I don't think that there was any clue that, you know, uh, that there was this amount of information that was available. Uh, But there was a, a consensus. I would say that folks knew that we weren't getting the complete, full, accurate story. Doug, what's interesting here is that Brnovich was one of the, if not the first, Republican elected official to publicly say the election was fine. He went on Fox News and said Joe Biden won Arizona. He then kind of shifted a little bit. Uh, You know, we don't want to ascribe motives, but he then kind of shifted a little bit and maybe 
raised some questions about it. He had that interim report to the state Senate, which suggested all sorts of irregularities. And now we know that for at least most of this time, he knew and his staff had told him that there were no irregularities. I, it, I, that's, that's so true. In November of 2020, um, he was one of the first said, hey, nothing to see here, folks. People people didn't vote for uh, 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 Donald Trump and they didn't vote for Martha McSally, but they voted for Republicans down tickets. Right. Easy to explain. Um, but he went back and forth on where he was. I mean, from lo- that strong statement. But what's really troubling to me is the, in, is the timing of all this, because in March of last year, after after the referral from President Karen, then President Karen Fan in September of the previous year from the Cyber Ninja, quote, unquote, audit, um, he knew in March after 10,000 hours of investigative time, 65 investigators, he knew in March, but yet in April, he put out this interim, which was unprecedented at the time, this interim report alleging that there was irregularities in, in Maricopa County. And he could have shut it all right down th- then and there. But what th- what his actions caused was was county supervisors being threatened, having to move out of their homes, having to have uh, security with their children. It could have shut all this down. And, and he affected so many people's lives. And actually, uh, in my, my opinion, really denigrated the institution of the Department of Law in the state of Arizona. Reginald, how much do you think he could have shut it down? I mean... Clearly, there are people who, regardless of what they read in in these documents, will still believe that the 2020 election was rife with fraud, that Donald Trump really won Arizona. So I guess from your – in your opinion, how much could he have shut it down by saying at the time what we now know that he knew then? You know, I I believe that elected officials' voices matter. You know, they give a platform uh, or they can actually, you know, uh, amplify motives, uh, you know, conspiracy theories um, that people may have. And, you know, by allowing the office to be used in a way that just amplified some people's suspicions or some people's political strategy, allow for, you know, quote unquote, the big lie, these security threats and these uh, security issues to continue. And, And I do think that we're at a time and place where we have to expect more from our public elected officials in which that, you know, just simply using your voice and saying, you know, playing politics when it has the ability to hurt someone and it has the ability to lose credibility of our great state and our institution is something that we have to take seriously. Doug, we've read about a couple of bar complaints against Brnovich. We don't know a lot of details. We don't really know any details about them at this point. Would you imagine that there will be some kind of repercussion to Brnovich for this? Well, I, again, we, we've heard already from the state bar there have been a couple of you know, bar complaints filed already. I would imagine that uh, there's some serious considerations by by parties that have been aggrieved um, and, and – uh, to file bar complaints, uh, you know this is this is serious stuff. Um, taxpayers' monies were expended with with the expectation that this information would be released. We do have public records laws in the state of Arizona, um, and a lot of media outlets and others asked for this um, asked for this uh, investigation, and it's only because 280 people decided in November they wanted Chris Mays to be the attorney general as opposed to her opponent, do we know this now? So, Doug, if you were advising Mark Brnovich right now, he, we've not really heard from him since this. What would you tell him to do? Well, I, th- I think that uh, he, he just – he needs to apologize in my opinion. 
I mean, the, the, there really is no excuse for this. I, 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 I'm, I've been involved in the public process in, uh, for 30 years, and I have never seen something like this. Uh, he just needs to come clean and try to move on. I don't know if he can move on. Reginald, what kind of reaction are you hearing about from your some of your former colleagues at the Capitol? I mean, I would imagine some of them probably are not super surprised by this, but I would imagine some of them probably are. You know, I mean, the the wide consensus right consensus right now is that you know many people believed uh, that there was information that was held back, and and, and you know. Uh, the challenging part now is that, you know, you've, you know, we're talking about the 2020 election again in, in 2023. You now have new statewide government. You know, the legislature has changed. Uh, but, again, but again, you know, we are still in this space and place here in the state of Arizona uh, where you know, we have real work to actually do. And, and I believe like the majority of people who I'm talking to, they're looking forward ahead and to actually trying to focus on today's problems and issues while also recognizing we cannot repeat and have what happened in, in the past. And that brings up a good point of, of looking forward and ahead. Well, th- this came out day before yesterday. Um Front page of the of the Washington Post, right. but then yesterday we had the joint committees of both both quote and I'm using air quotes here. And we are on radio <laughs> uh, of the elections committee had a joint meeting all day long, all day long, repeating and grifting all these accusations that were debunked by ten thousand hours of investigation by our attorney general, and they spent all day in the legislature. And, and the, the Democrats wouldn't even participate. I guess that kind of raises the question of back like maybe to the original point of like how much does this actually move the needle? Because clearly there are still people who will look at, at what Brnovich had compiled and not released, what Attorney General Mays has now released and say, yeah, no, that we still have evidence. I mean, we hear it from Carrie Lake that she still has evidence of fraud in, in 2022. So, I mean, is this just is this a something that we're going to have to learn to live with to some extent? You know, the problem is, is elected leaders are actually being rewarded for their, you know, dishonesty or in actually pushing these claims. You know, when you get to a place or at least at a at a hyper local level, when you look in, you know, uh, very, you know, uh, red conservative districts, people are being rewarded, whether it's, you know, through leadership and, you know, these, uh, you know, potential areas and clubs or whether it's, you know, being elected to office. So until you see the public demanding more, uh, you won't get more. Um, But at an aggregate level, when you talk about statewide, when you talk about, you know, independent voters, when you talk about, you know, uh, moderate Republicans and people who want to get work done, uh, folks are just being further and further alienated from these people who are continuously pushing this, this, this claim. All right. So, Reginald, speaking of people who are trying to get work done for the state, we saw some more uh, hearings this week for uh, nominees to lead state agencies. The uh, Department of Transportation uh, nominee was moved forward. The director nominee for the Department of Administration, basically the HR department uh, for the state, was grilled and then held on. Uh, the uh, the chairman of the, the committee, Senator Jake Hoffman, said, we have some more questions. We think maybe she wasn't being totally truthful. I'm curious what you make of, of what you have seen so far uh, out of out of this committee. You know, the the calculus and the strategy has been one that I think simply for, you know, Senate Republicans, I, I just don't think it's a it's a winning strategy. So the play has been we're going to do whatever we can possible to make sure that the Hobbs administration doesn't look good, even if that means that it's going to affect our state 
our state budget, if it's going to affect our state uh, agencies. Uh, and, you know, this idea of what we're seeing here in Arizona is just a mirroring of what's happening uh, in, in Washington, D.C. And, and and the reality is, is people, they're not asking for Arizona to follow behind a broken system that we're seeing, you know, in, in D.C. When you talk about that, they're, they're actually looking to move forward. And, you know, I, I think that um, you'll continue to see, um, you know, this committee, you know, um, you know, do go through a lot of different strategies and, and quite frankly, put a, a number of different roadblocks uh, for agencies just simply because they believe that that's a, a winning strategy. Um, but you just look as far as no, the November 2022 election, which shows that People aren't asking for that. They're asking for people to come together and get work done, not more politics uh, and more circus-like behavior. Doug, we, th- this nominee had worked in the Ducey administration. She was a, a deputy under uh, then-director Andy Tobin. Um, th- it didn't seem like ahead of time there was a lot of concern that maybe she would run into trouble. Was it surprising that she did? Yes, it is, especially for this particular position because this is the agency's agency, okay? They do HR, they do risk management, they do procurement. You know, it's boring government (laughs) stuff that they do, but it's a very important agency. And Elizabeth Thorson's been been around forever and, you know, she started as the HR director. She she was the HR director over the Department of Environmental Quality and, you know, is well known. But um, I – this new committee that's been set up, which is unprecedented, the, the Committee on Director Nominations, consolidates all all the uh, advice and consent of, of the governor's nominees in, into one committee. Uh, it, it's the Senate's it's constitutional right to do that under Article 4, Section 8. They can – they set their own rules. So uh, – um, you know, they, they also took credit, Senator Hoffman took credit uh, uh, Wednesday evening for forcing out the governor's nominee to the Department of Child Safety. Right. Yeah, we'll talk about uh, that. Yeah, too, yeah. yeah, Mr. Stewart. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a long road. But, but this happened before in, in, in 1991 when Governor Symington, the newly elected Republican governor, and the Democrats were controlled by, by – by, I mean the Senate was controlled by the Democrats led by Pete Rios. And they gave Symington's – I was there. I was his right. deputy chief of staff. They gave our nominees similar uh, problems uh, and rejected some of – and rejected Governor Symington's nominee to the Department of Administration ah. uh, in 1991, a guy by the name of Jerry Tobin. Uh, we just we just turned around and made him deputy director. <laughs> that is Doug Cole. I'm also joined by Reginald Bolding. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. So Reginald, Doug mentioned uh, Matthew Stewart, uh, the nominee for the Department of Child Safety. Uh, his nomination was withdrawn after some disturbing allegations uh, came through. How how bad is this for Governor Hobbs? I mean, she's had one nominee already withdrawn slash rejected by the Senate, another one withdrawn. We just talked about the Department of Administration is on hold and maybe in trouble. How bad is this for her and her administration? Well, I think you have to take a step back and, you know, you, you look at what are things that are within, you know, a, a governor's, you know, lo- locus of control and, and what are things that aren't, right? You know, and, you know, every governor has the ability and the right to choose who their nominees are and then those nominees have to go through public scrutiny. That's that's the process from a national level down to, you know, a state level. Um, with that said, uh, I think it is extremely important 
though, that, you know, that as as the governor is selecting, you know, these nominees, which, by the way, is the is, was a historic and unprecedented uh, list of individuals uh, with regards to diversity, with regards to, you know, uh, talent and knowledge. And, and and I really think that she did a, a, an excellent job on, on her picks. Um, but you have a. Uh, a, a nomination committee who is willing to do whatever, uh, whether it's, you know, make agencies uh, work more difficult uh, without having, an, you know, a director in that in that role uh, in order to try to take a shot at Hobbs. I, I don't think that I don't think that these are uh, a shot at Governor Hobbs. I actually think it shows the more extremism that you're seeing in the state Senate, i.e. why you need to actually, you know, change people in that in that body. So, Doug, in this case, uh, Senator Hoffman said basically, look, if if the governor's not going to vet her nominees, this is stuff that happened in the past. It leaves it to us to do it. I mean, does this give him and that committee a little bit more more ammo for what they're doing? I I, I equate this one uh, not the same way with Dr. Cullen, who was the who was the nominee that uh, that uh, withdrew for the, the Department, Department of Health Services, who was the Pima County Health. That that was based on on COVID policies and and just an extreme disagreement on on personal liberties and govern government in, intervention. She was extremely is extremely qualified has a has a, a, a wonderful resume, but you know it just was not going to happen. And 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 I don't blame her for withdrawing. This one out of all the governor's nominees. When, when I, I think it was was probably uh, a misstep by the administration, uh, this person uh, didn't have uh, the the experience that Dr. Cullen had in her field. Um, I you know you, you make missteps, and and so this person is not moving forward. She has some great other great nominees. I agree with Reginald on, on this. She's done a great job. Uh, Karen Peters at DEQ, Jennifer Toth. Uh, at at ADOT, I mean the list is uh, uh, Director Rogers at DES. Uh, it's, it's just done a, a great and, and keeping Tom Buchotsky at DWR. So I, I would, you know, you make missteps. It's a very compressed time that you got to find people. Uh, she'll find somebody else for DCS. It's an important agency. Uh, she just needs to move on and find somebody else. It happens. All right. So Doug Reginald mentioned maybe changing the people in the legislature. This week, Governor Hobbs said that she is going to commit at this point half a million dollars to doing that, to flipping the legislature uh, from Republican control to Democratic control. Um, This is something that, I mean, I I can remember at least 10 or 12 years ago, Democrats talking about winning winning the legislature, at least one chamber when Jim Wires was the Speaker of the House all the way back then. I mean, it, the Republicans have have a one one seat edge in both chambers. But given the way the districts are drawn, and given the way the state is made up, and I guess to an extent, given candidates, can it can it happen? It certainly can. And I hate to keep turning back the clock to 1991. <laughs> Doug's glory days. But no. <laughs> but there's there's so many things that are happening again. You know, history just repeats itself. So we had a Democrat um, controlled uh, uh, Senate. Um, uh, they were giving Governor then Governor Symington a lot of problems with his nominations and his and his policies. Mm-hmm. So he committed, we committed uh, as 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 an administration early on that we were going to go after a, a couple of, of Democrats in swing districts, and we targeted a gentleman by the name of John Doherty down in Green Valley, and we lived in Green Valley. Governor Symington did, and we defeated him, and we flipped the Senate, and then life got a lot better. And, and we raised a lot of money. And so 
um, Governor Hobbs is repeating re, re, repeating that that playbook, and and I don't blame her. That's what I'd be doing if I was sitting up there. Does it make it, Reginald, a little harder for her to work with Republicans, though, when she's openly talking a month into her administration of trying to beat them in two years? I mean, I don't think that there was any question that, you know, the Republican legislature were going to provide roadblocks regardless, right? Uh, you know, in every uh, comment that we've seen from Governor Hobbs, she's talked about bipartisanship. She's talked about working together. And that's just not the same rhetoric you hear from, you know, Senate or House Republicans. And, and you know, the reality is if you can't change people's hearts, you, you change their offices, you know, uh, and, 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 and that is something that I think that Governor Hobbs is particularly looking at. I mean, you know, uh, the, the reality is right now there are so many significant issues uh, here happening in the state of Arizona. You know, everyone's focused on housing, infrastructure, all of these things are happening. And we are seeing the same policies uh, where uh, Senate Republicans are running further and further to the right. And I, I can tell you, that's actually going to help uh, Governor Hobbs and her strategy as she goes into these districts in which we're extremely close in the in the 2022 election. I, the, I agree with my, my friend Reginald here that the, those issues, there's many issues that need to be addressed. But the first thing that needs to be addressed and figured out is the from the ninth floor's perspective, they got to figure out how to work with this legislature. Okay, it it is you know the old the old adage she she has the biggest one vote. Okay, it takes sixteen thirty one and one. She has the biggest one, but she has to in order for her to get through these issues that Reginald just uh, just went through. She has to figure out how to work with them. Conversely, the legislature not only has to figure out how to work between the House and the Senate, um, they also have to figure out how to work with her. So we're going to see we we've already seen fourteen vetoes. Um, uh, every bill that's come up there has already been vetoed. Uh, this is going to continue for a while, and and not until it's in, until there's there's a, a a path to get things passed, and and how they and 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 after they figure out how to work together, well, only then will we be able to address the budget, housing, and all uh, and water, and all these other things that are, that are that are really high and important in Arizonans' minds. Well, so Doug, let's go back to your your experience in the Symington administration. How do you break the ice? Like, how do you start the process of having a governor of one party work with a legislature of another party? Like, somebody's got to make the first move, right? Well, I mean, she, she's got to start building relationships with members of the majority party, the thin majority, building relationships with legislators that she can work with. Um, and, and it just takes a lot of, you know, personal cultivation, uh, identify issues that, 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 that can be aligned. It, it's just a process. And this is not going to be resolved tomorrow. It's not going to be resolved next month. It's probably going to be resolved in July. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully a budget's done by then. Hopefully so. <laughs> yeah. So, Reginald, I mean, having served at the legislature, always with a Republican governor as a Democrat in, in the legislature, do you get the sense that it is possible that the Republicans in the legislature and Governor Hobbs can, I, I assume they want to work together to some extent, can they? I, I believe, you know, absolutely they, they can. It's something that can happen. Um, do I believe that we'll go to the very last, you know, hour 
and and maybe even past that. Again, I I I believe that this could be a a place where we are talking about you know a government shutdown. I do legitimately believe that that dynamics right now, everything is you know set up for that to happen. Um, when you think about those lawmakers who have you know worked across the aisle, who've looked at you know potential bipartisan, uh, you know budgets or bills. They were more experienced legislators, you know, and, and just thinking about my time, you had the Kate Ropey McGee's, the Heather Carter's, the Paul Boyer's. In this legislature, you have a, a number of new members, uh, those who are more experienced, who are in somewhat swing districts, also have political aspirations. And those political aspirations live through that more conservative wing of the caucus. So what's happening in these caucus rooms right now is that you have people who recognize that the strategy of just being no on everything is not it's not okay, um, but their voice is the minority voice in the room, uh, and they can't break the ground unless they decide that they're going to have to, you know, put their own political career, uh, you know, in jeopardy uh, and, and make, a, make a change. Doug, about 30, 30 seconds left. Yeah, but, but here's the challenge. Uh, you know, she's, as we talked earlier, that she's putting this fund together to go after, after uh, particular districts, and, and there's, you know, four or five districts, but, but, but on the other side, the people, the Republicans that, that hold those seats right now would be the natural Republicans that she would need to get stuff done. Mm. So it's, it's kind of a dichotomy for her because, because the way the districts are drawn, they're, they're, they're either so Republican or so Democrat. These swing districts are, are where she needs to make gains, but those are the Republicans she needs to work with and build relationships with. So so it's going to be a long road. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. That is Doug Cole of High Ground, also with me, former House Minority Leader Reginald Bolden. Guys, thanks for coming in. Thank, Thank you. you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, disgust plays an important role in human behavior, but Shakespeare had that figured out long before modern scientists. First, though, the network that carries the Suns, Coyotes, Diamondbacks, and Mercury games in Arizona is in trouble. Diamond Sports Group, the parent company of the 19 Valley Sports Channels across the country, has missed a payment and could be moving towards bankruptcy. And that has some fans worried about being able to watch their team's games. As my next guest explains, all of this is leading the industry to take another look at the Regional Sports Network, or RSN, model altogether. Bill Shea is a senior sports business reporter for The Athletic, and he joins me. And Bill, how did we get to this point where these RSNs are in such financial trouble? Well, it's it's a long time coming and then sort of happened real quick um, in the last few years. But, uh, you know, basically RSNs became a big thing, the, the primary method for delivering a lot of live sports games on TV in the, in the 1990s um, and, you know, through the through the 2000s. Um, but at the same time, other technologies were arising, um, the Internet chiefly. And then streaming arose and people started cutting cable and that has picked up pace more and more and more. And when when those households were lost, the money was lost that allowed these RSNs to, to easily pay the enormous rights fees to air these games. Um, and that, that built up financial pressure. Disney decided it wanted to buy 21st Century Fox a few years ago. That included Fox's 20-some RSNs. For that deal to be completed, um, and it was 70-some billion dollars, 
Disney had to turn right around and sell these 20-some RSNs, and it found a buyer in uh, Sinclair, and they rebranded them as, as Bally Sports, as people recognize them today. But the financial pressures continued. So uh, Sinclair's RSN subsidiary, which is called Diamond Sports Group, got further into financial trouble. They just uh, earlier this month skipped a, a debt payment um, and they're looking at reorganization, potentially bankruptcy. Uh, maybe a white knight comes in and buys it all up with a lot of money to burn. Um, but we find ourselves now um, after all of this in a sort of wait and see what happens. That's a real big wait and see yeah. what happens. Right. Well, so based on, on your experience, based on your reporting, what seems to be the most likely scenario for what happens to these these Bally Sports uh, stations and the games that they carry? Well, I, I think there'll be some sort of reorganization. It's it's not clear yet whether that will happen within a bankruptcy framework or just negotiations, you know, with, with the various lenders, the sports leagues. Um, but, you know, Diamond Sports Group's looking for debt relief. Um, they, they don't have the money to, to pay what they owe basically short and in long term. Um, everybody has said games will continue. They will be on your TV, but we're going to get a sense over, I think, coming months, exactly what the reorganization and debt relief will look like. Um, and these leagues have to figure out, you know, can, can we get our money, you know, cause that money sustains not just profits, but you know, the ability to pay payroll for players and, and to put games on and, and none of this is cheap, you know, creating and producing these broadcasts at the RSN level is not a, a cheap thing to do. So it's not like major league baseball can just walk in and overnight have the infrastructure to do that. Um, so there's, there's some real risk here. Well, it's interesting because MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred has said that, you know, games will continue to be available. And it it also kind of seems like if you read between the lines based on what he's saying, that MLB might be looking at this as an opportunity to maybe do things a little differently, maybe get rid of of blackouts in, in particular markets, things like that. Yeah, there. That's and that's one of the the biggest things I hear about from from fans when I write about RSNs is the blackout stuff. Um, you know, with uh, online and and on TV. Um, so that that's a huge question. Is this an opportunity for all of the leagues to regain control of their digital streaming rights and perhaps roll out and expanded? You know. MLB TV, NBA, you know, those sort of products owned by the leagues. And, you know, and, and this is occurring while streaming is on the rise, you know, the streaming wars, which are unprofitable for everybody, you know, as consumer habits continue to change. But the question just comes down to money. Even if you shifted all of your games from, you know, your Comcast or whatever your cable or satellite provider is to an app on your phone through baseball or the NBA, um, how much are they going to charge to make up for the loss of those rights fees mm. um, that the RSNs, you know, the diamond was paying billions of dollars to these, these teams for, you know, can you, can you make up the revenue? Because if you can't, well, there's a, a real problem with the whole economic structure of, of these leagues. Right. So you mentioned that all of the leagues affected by this say that their games will continue to be on TV. Will they continue to be on TV? Like, is there reason to to not believe them or that fans might miss out, for example, the NHL, the NBA going into the sort of the home stretch of their seasons? MLB, of course, starting up pretty soon. I think 
you know, because of the timing, you know, the NBA and the NHL were inching towards their playoffs and things like that. A lot of their rights fees have already been paid for this season. You know, baseball is coming up um, quicker than we realize. You know, those rights fees are coming up to be paid. And the question is, does Diamond Sports have the cash on hand? Can they reorganize to get additional lending, you know, influx of, of cash to keep going so that the consumer's experience isn't affected? Because, you know, on both sides, that's sort of the nightmare scenario is you're off TV, you're not being streamed. That's a real problem. I, I think it's in everybody's best interest. The games for now continue. What it looks like in maybe 2024, that's a real open open question. You know, there's, and there's still a lot of debate within the industry about what is the future of streaming? Um, you know, what is the new normal of sports consumption going to look like it's probably going to look different and we're seeing a lot of hybrid deals now like the nfl with its thursday night football is on amazon prime video you know nationally and the nba is expected to have a big streaming package when its next set of media rights come up uh, in two years so there's there's a lot of question marks right now we're in a huge inflection point basically for sports right now in this country yeah, well, I wonder if you think that what's going on now with Diamond Sports Group says anything about other RSNs. I mean, you think about, you know, for example, in the Bay Area, there's there's one there for the the MLB teams there, and the and the Golden State Warriors, the Yankees, and the Mets each have their own RSNs. Like, does this say anything? What's going on now about any of the other operations? The whole RSN model is in trouble, but. You know, Sinclair and, and Diamond are sort of in the crosshairs because, of you know, they have an $8 billion plus debt load on top of the, the shifting sands of of how we consume television and, and sports and streaming and all that. You know, Sinclair clearly doesn't want to dip into its own pockets to sort of subsidize Diamond any, any more than it has. There's no other RSN provider as big as as Diamond. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 19 channels, and 47 teams. The other ones have a little bit different financial arrangements, like Yes Network, I believe, is profitable and has a bunch of investors. I don't think anything is in, in near jeopardy for them, but they are still subject to the same economic and, and consumer forces going on. It just you know, the younger people consume sports differently. All right. That is Bill Shea, senior sports business reporter at The Athletic. Bill, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Spring training starts today with a pair of games. There's a full slate of eight games tomorrow, including the Diamondbacks playing two split squad games. For decades, baseball fans have flocked to the Valley to see their teams and in some cases also escape the cold. But spring training has looked a little different over the past few years with the COVID-19 pandemic and last year's MLB lockout. There hasn't been a typical spring training in about three years. But Cactus Cactus League Association Executive Director Bridget Binsbacher says that's finally changing. This is the first time fans can go into our stadiums without a modified schedule or reduced capacity or various protocols and signage and all of that. Uh, It'll look and feel uh, like it used to. Binsbacher says this isn't just good news for Arizonans who love baseball. The Cactus League draws fans from all over the place. Our survey that we do every other year in partnership with ASU uh, has shown that 
six out of 10 of those fans are coming from somewhere else in the country, somewhere else in the world. And as a result of spring training, they go to other places throughout the state. So it's a, it's a huge impact. And I think everyone's looking forward to business as usual. But the Cactus League will still be slightly different than usual this year, thanks to the World Baseball Classic, a 20-country tournament that features a lot of major leaguers. One of the four pools is playing in Phoenix in mid-March, a group that includes the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. That means some big leaguers will be away from their MLB teams, and the WBC games themselves will be played at the same time as Cactus League games. Again, Bridget Binsbacher. Typically, you know, we would have World Baseball Classic every four years. Those games would tack on to the regular spring training schedule. So it was kind of an extension of spring. And now it is a little bit different in that it's in the middle of the season. You know, most of those games are played at Chase Field. And so that could have an impact. Spring training kicks off today at 1 with the Rangers against the Royals and the Mariners versus the Padres. Good morning, it's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Disgust is a basic human emotion, and a powerful one at that. And our next guest says the bard himself used disgust as a powerful storytelling tool. Bradley Irish is an English professor at ASU, and his forthcoming book, Shakespeare and Disgust, The History and Science of Early Modern Revulsion, argues that Shakespeare was visionary in his use of disgust, using it in his work centuries before science proved its power. My co-host Lauren Gilger spoke with him more about it and how he became interested in a topic so, well, disgusting. I've actually been working on disgust for well over a decade. Going back to my days as a graduate student, my uh, first book, Emotion in the Tudor Court, explored a variety of emotions in 16th century literature, and disgust was one of them. Mm. But after writing that book... I, uh, I kept having the feeling that there was more to say about the topic, and it stayed in the back of my mind. And as a scholar of early modern English, I'm always reading Shakespeare for either my teaching or my research. And in the last few years, I kept noticing how often his plays engaged with themes related to disgust. Hmm. And after a while, I realized that really there was a book to be written on the subject. <laughs> uh, modern science tells us that disgust plays a absolutely vital role in human behavior. And I think that Shakespeare intuitively recognized that because hmm. he loved to use the language and themes related to disgust throughout so many of his works. And then more broadly, one of the things that compels me to write about disgust is the fact that disgust is inherently compelling. Scientific evidence shows that uh, disgusting stimuli capture our attention more quickly and for longer periods of time than more emotionally neutral stimuli do. Hmm. And that's because disgust fundamentally protects us from substances that might cause us harm. So we're primed to pay attention to disgusting things so that we (laughs) might best avoid them. So in that sense, I guess I'm someone that just finds disgusting things inherently fascinating, as so many people apparently do. Right. That's what I was going to say. Like, so, yes, there's a protective nature of this that makes sense. But also, like, we are sort of, I think, inherently attracted to things that disgust us. Right. Like if somebody holds something up to you and says, oh, my goodness, this smells so awful. You have to smell it. You're going to smell it. Right. Like we all do that. Why? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's something that I actually talk a little bit about in the book. Um, it's it's the kind of uh, paradox of disgust, you might want to call it. The fact that we need to pay attention to disgusting things so that we know 
not to engage with them so that they don't harm us. But at the same time, the fact of the matter is, is that because we are compelled to pay attention to them, they draw our gaze. Mm. They invite us in. So we're simultaneously being told to pay attention to something that we're also being told to avoid. It's a really fascinating psychological mechanism. It really is. Okay. And it sounds like Shakespeare used this to great effect. Tell us how, and, and give us a few examples of how you think he used disgust best in his work. Sure. So my understanding of disgust is basically anchored in how the modern sciences uh, theorize the emotion. And one of the things that I, that I do find really fascinating is how Shakespeare seemed to anticipate certain things about disgust that scientists would go on to discover 400 years later. So a good example of this is the tragedy of Othello, which, which many people will probably be familiar with. Mm -hmm. Othello is a play about a great black general who exists in the very white world of early modern Venice. And he actually gets manipulated into murdering his wife by a jealous, envious subordinate named Iago. Now, because Othello is a racial outsider in Venice, one of the ways that Iago destroys him is by leveraging the racism of other characters. And the way that he does this is crucial. He routinely characterizes Othello with disgust-based concepts, such as associating him with foulness, with loathsomeness, and even with vomit. And what's really interesting is that modern science has performed countless experiments that demonstrate the linkage between disgust and racism and xenophobia. Hmm. The theory being that for some people, the disgust system identifies those from racial or ethnic outgroups as more susceptible to carrying disease and thus being more dangerous. That's why the, the language of modern racism so often relies on the rhetoric of disease. People from other cultures, unfortunately, get associated with dirt, disease, and vermin. Hmm. And Shakespeare, I think, understood this connection uh, centuries before it was confirmed by modern scientists. So this is often, it sounds like in Shakespeare, also about social norms, about morality or the ways in which those two things collide. Yes, absolutely. And, and um, really, to, to tell the story of that, I need to kind of explain how disgust works more generally. Mm -hmm. So scientists theorize that this human disgust system basically began as a mechanism designed to help us avoid eating toxic or pathogenic substances. And that's why the quintessential physiological response of disgust is vomiting something that literally expels dangerous material that we may have eaten. Yeah. But food, of course, is not the only place where humans encounter pathogens. So disgust seems to have evolved to regulate avoidance behavior concerning all sorts of potentially dangerous things. How we react to disease, to bad hygiene, to bodily injuries, certain kinds of animals, and even contact with strangers. Mm -hmm. And then what comes even more interesting on top of that is how disgust came to protect not just our physical bodies from contaminants, but our symbolic bodies from ideas that are conceptually harmful. And that's what moral disgust is, the disgust we feel when uh, a cherished value or a cultural norm is violated. Yeah. So for example, it's a, a very real thing to say that someone is disgusted by an act of racism, because that's true. And indeed, there's experimental evidence suggesting that when we are exposed to morally offensive ideas, our throats and stomachs will often clench up hmm. as if we were going to vomit out a literal toxin. And that's because moral disgust and physical disgust fundamentally emerge from the same psychological 
biological system, this general protection mechanism. So moral disgust is absolutely right there. And, that, and that's really, you can see it as a kind of spectrum, starting with food that we eat, going with ideas that harm us, and disgust kind of regulates over all of that. And so is Shakespeare in his work essentially like disgusting the audience with his disgust? And that's like a, a cycle we're supposed to be involved in. And that gives us sort of an emotional investment in these stories. I, I think that's absolutely true. So so uh, without question, Shakespeare sometimes tries to disgust his audience. In some instances, it's via imagery. Uh, Tim of Athens, for example, says that gold embalms and spices to the April day again she whom the spittle house and ulcerous sores would cast the gorge at. Mm. In other words, money can make someone appealing who is so ugly that contaminated hospital wards and open wounds would vomit at them. So when he says that, I think our... Our stomach is is definitely supposed to turn a bit. But at other times, Shakespeare depicts revolting things actually happening on stage. Mm -hmm. And the play Titus Andronicus is a famous example of this. Uh, For those who don't know, it has all the extreme violence of a modern slasher film. So gory, in fact, that some critics historically have thought that it couldn't have been written by Shakespeare because it's beneath his supposed dignity. But it was. (laughs) And and in modern performances, uh, we have all this evidence that that people often faint or vomit when they watch it, Hmm. or they report sleepless nights after returning home from the theater because it's so disgusting and disturbing to them. So it's, it's a play that's definitely primed to disgust us, yet at the same time, it was a popular play in Shakespeare's time, just as it is popular today, because as I said, things that are disgusting are, are often very compelling, and, and that's, that's what you mentioned as well. Another way in which Shakespeare was probably prescient. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, All right. That is Bradley Irish, Associate Professor of English at ASU. The new book is Shakespeare and Discussed the History and Science of Early Modern Revulsion. Bradley, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for explaining this to us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, hopefully we're not leaving you with too bad of a taste in your mouth at this point. That is it for this Friday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for being here. I am Mark Brody. Have a great rest of your day. Have a terrific weekend. See you right back here on Monday. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody for Lauren Gilger and Steve Goldstein. Thanks for listening today.